We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. I'm your host, Dr. Heidi Forbesista, and today I'm excited to introduce to you someone who's got a great story. His name is Michael Ferguson. He is a travel strategist, and he is a world traveler and author of Leave Me Alone, I'm on Vacation. Doesn't that sound like a kind of book you want to read? Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Heidi. So tell me a little bit about, you're a world traveler. Obviously, you've been to lots of places by saying that. So tell us a little bit about your story and and how did you come to be working in this space of ideal vacation? Well, let's see. I mean, the idea for my book and the whole concept of Leave Me Alone was probably about 10 years ago. I was in Colorado at one of our beautiful state parks. It's early in the morning. You know, imagine there's this beautiful reservoir. There's mountains everywhere. There's uh, balloons hovering overhead because it's you know early in the morning, perfect time for ballooning. And I'm thinking, you know, this is like the perfect travel experience right now because it's nice and quiet and I'm at peace. I started thinking to myself, well, I've had some pretty good travel uh, experiences in my life and also some ones that probably could have been better. So what exactly is it about having a good travel experience versus a not so good travel experience? So that started me on a journey of really trying to explore that sort of within myself. What I came to realize is it really has to do with my personality as a traveler. I started reading some books about personality types because that was another topic that really interested me. I realized that the aspects of personality that seems to be the most relevant to travel is where you sit on the introversion, extroversion scale. And that's simply because the reason people, most people travel is they want to recharge their batteries. Now, recharging your batteries means a different thing depending on where you sit on this introversion, extroversion scale. Uh, Extroverts love to go out and explore the nightlife of a city and be around lots of people and lots of excitement, lots of stimulation, and that actually recharges their batteries. Introverts, which by the way, I am amongst, (laughs) they recharge their batteries by being away from people as much as possible, except for maybe a few people that they know in a sort of more intimate environment. And they find the company of lots of people and crowds stimulating, but also very, very draining. So I realized, well, this is why I've had some good experiences and some not so good experiences, is because I didn't, first of all, realize what kind of traveler I was. And then I also didn't realize, you know, what kind of planning I could do to have a better travel experience. And so that led me into writing the book, Leave Me Alone, I'm on Vacation, because that really just summarizes my philosophy on what a good travel experience is for me and people who have similar types of personality. So I went ahead and published the book about a year ago. And I also thought along the lines of, well, geez, this might be a good topic for a company because there's lots of travel companies out there, mind you. I mean, it's a very commodified industry, but I wasn't so sure there was a lot of travel providers that keep the introverted traveler in mind with their products and services. And I thought this actually might be an underserved community. So I created the company Travel Your Way, and the intention of that is for us to provide 
travel services and products that are more geared towards people who are more introverted and really want that experience of kind of getting away from people to recharge rather than getting towards people. You know, that so resonates for me. I have to tell you a funny little story. So when I was, I guess it was 21 and I was studying abroad in Austria and I had a friend who came to visit me and he said, I'm coming, you know, I, I want to come over and visit you. He'd never been to Europe before. And I said, well, that's great. You're coming during my spring break. So, and I have a URL pass. So why don't you, you know, get a URL pass and we'll go travel together. And, uh, you know, this was, keep in mind, this is 1989. So early 1989, just after the Berlin Wall fell, not, you know, open European community, you have to get your passport stamped everywhere. So part of the challenge was to see how many places you could get stamped and everything. Well, anyway, long story short, his idea of the ideal trip was to go see all the nightlife and wanted to ride the trains during the day to get from city to city. I wanted to sleep on the trains and go to museums during the day and go walk around and sit in cafes and people watch. So it just described perfectly what you were explaining there. And this is, this was sort of my first real test of like, okay, to find your perfect travel buddy you have to ask some very important questions before you get started. Needless to say, that was a disastrous travel experience together, and we ended up splitting off unintentionally, but it actually worked out just fine. I didn't want to pay more for the sleeper car, so he was in the sleeper car, and the train split apart in the middle of the night, and I ended up in Berlin, which, by the way, was still East Germany, and he ended up going to Copenhagen, and that was the end of our traveling together. <laughs> oh, wow. But... but uh, you learned well, and the gift in this is that you learned what kind of travel you where you were during that experience. Absolutely, absolutely. And at a relatively young age, you know, it took me. Uh, I think I, how old was I? Maybe forty by the time I really started thinking about what kind of traveler I was. Yeah, I mean, I think most people don't really realize, and they assume even you know their best friend, they may think, oh, you know, this is a great person to travel with, and then all of a sudden you you get out there and. You have completely different agendas, and yet you want to do things together. And that can be really, really tricky. How do you manage that when you're dealing with clients that, you know, they have a group, for example, and even the group could be two people, or it could be a couple that have very different needs in their travel, but they want to do something together? Well, I think when you're faced with a situation like that, it's all about compromise. And it, obviously, it's more of a challenge. Sometimes you have couples who are kind of mirror images of each other. Like my wife and I are both very introverted, so that part's easy. But then if you have introvert-extrovert couplings, which I guess are fairly common out there because the extrovert kind of helps, you know, manage the social life for the introvert, you know, anyway. They compensate I, for each other, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in a way they compensate and to enhance each other. But I think a lot of it's really about, you know, then making sure that each person, or let's say you can kind of group people, some of the more introverted people and some of the more extroverted people into activities where, you know, they might split and do things separately for part of the time and identify those activities where the introverts will probably love this and the extroverts will probably find this uh, terrible and vice versa. And then find a few things where both introverts and extroverts can both enjoy it together. And so I think it would be really more about sort of identifying which activities and which situations work for, if you will, each group of people. And when I say group, it might be one half of a couple versus the other or one half of a group versus another group. Yeah. What are some of your favorite 
places or stories from your travel experience? Because you've obviously been to many different places. Well, gosh, you you kind of uh, helped me think back to my days in college because I had a year rail pass and I went, uh, I studied abroad in Germany actually for half a year. And so when I saw your last name, you know, and you gotta, I noticed you pronounce it uh, with the umlaut. I'm like, oh my gosh, you must be German or married to a German anyway. Scandinavian, um, but close. They still use the, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But um, anyhow, I, I also was in uh, Eastern Europe, and this is 1991. It was fascinating because it was the spring after the um, reunification of Germany. So this whole country that had built itself up as a separate identity, meaning East Germany, all of a sudden was now part of West Germany, a country that to be quite honest, it had referred to at best as an adversary and at worst an enemy. And now they're being all forced together. And it was a fascinating time to travel around there. And in particular, I was in Berlin and I actually did sort of have the presence of mind to think about the trip on the Strassenbahn, which is the street, above ground streetcar that goes between the two halves of the city. And I realized, you know, I'm making a perfectly trivial trip that other people had waited 30 years to be able to make because they were separated by the wall and um, the, the politics behind the wall. Also, as I was traveling around East Germany, I went to, let's see, Eisenach, which is where the Wartburg is. That's where Martin Luther translated the Bible. Mm. I don't know what was more fascinating. I mean, I don't know if it was seeing the Wartburg itself, which of course had a lot of historical significance, or looking around East Germany, or what had just previously been East Germany, and there were these lumps of coal all in the streets. People were still burning coal in their homes. And it wasn't the good coal that you see in the United States in the coal cars. It was this brown, I think it's called lignite. It's this brown, dirty coal. And the air hung heavy with this heavy industrial smell to it. So, you know, it, it's almost like the sights were sort of secondary to the smells and the sounds and uh, everything else. We also went to Weimar, which uh, a lot of people know as being the seat of government back in the 20s when Germany was uh, trying to become a democracy between when it was essentially a monarchy and then when the rise of Hitler and all that. But uh, Weimar was an interesting city too, but it turned out there was a military, a Soviet military base just outside the city. Because what had happened was the reunification had happened, but not everything had been sorted out, including what to do with these Soviet soldiers that were all stationed at these bases at the invitation of the East Germans. And these poor guys were kind of in a limbo because the Russians couldn't really afford to take them back because they had their own problems. And quite honestly, the Germans really didn't want them there anymore either. So it was just fascinating. You know, we just kind of drove past it. And I saw these guys with these, you know, big wide brimmed hats and Soviet uniforms. I'm like, oh my God, this is like something out of a, a James Bond movie. And here it is for real. You know, I'm actually seeing the end of the Cold War. And, I, you know, at, at the time things were still unfolding, but to actually be there when such change was happening was, was absolutely fascinating. And to see how culturally different the uh, eastern part of Germany had become from the west, it was just almost too much to take in. And to me, 
that made the experience a lot more than just a simple trip to Germany. Mm -hmm. I, I can imagine. I mean, I was there just before you and a lot of very similar experiences where you really fully take in that contrast. And a lot of it is really a sensory experience. It's much more than just, oh, you know, we're having a little bit of different type of food. Yes, the food is different, but the smells and the just everything, the colors. I remember going through Checkpoint Charlie, which doesn't exist anymore, through Checkpoint Charlie and this sort of brilliant Berlin to the other side where everything was gray. And it was just, it was fascinating. It seemed, I felt like I'd, you know, gone from a technicolor to black and white, you know, all in just, you know, going through a gate. It's fascinating. And, and, yeah, I mean, and Berlin I think- is fascinating to begin with because the city went through so much turmoil during World War II that if you look at a block, and I'm not only talking about East Berlin, which was built up in, you know, this very drab socialist communist style, functional, but very, very ugly. But West Berlin also is fascinating because you can find actually very, very few buildings that existed before about 1945 because the city was so heavily bombarded by the Allies. So you've got these one or two, you know, older buildings that you can recognize that were probably from the 19th century or earlier and a hodgepodge of other styles that were built up at various periods later. So it's sort of like probably an architect's dream and looking at different styles because it had to be built up in such a piecemeal fashion. Have you been back? I mean, I think that's what one of those things is so fascinating to be able to return to some of those places that you experience that were really sort of, I mean, for me, and it sounds like maybe for you, that time, that period of time in my life was such a catalyst for the rest of my life. I mean, I spent a year living in Austria and traveling around as much as I could and absorbing as much as I could from different cultures. And really, it sort of led to the way that I, you know, lived the rest of my life. I ended up living and working and studying in Europe over most of my 20s and then ended up marrying a Swede and we ended up moving up to Sweden. I mean, it really got me hooked on other cultures. But the other piece was that it also made me appreciate my own culture in a very different way. And it made me I guess not just appreciation, but also much more sort of thinking of it more critically. And not I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying sort of like critical thinking of like, why do we do it that way? Maybe there's a better yeah. way. Yeah. And I, I think I, I felt the same way when I was in Germany, because when I was studying in Germany, amongst all these trips, like the one we made to uh, Berlin and into Eastern Germany, I was living with the German family. And very, very ingrained in the German culture. And in fact, I found that I really had to distance myself a little bit from the American students. Otherwise, I realized I wouldn't really have the full experience that I could get by living with this family. I would like to go back to, I I actually did visit them again, I think in like 2002. So it would have been about 11 years later. However, I haven't been back to some of those places I talked about, and that would be fascinating. Like. the city of Dresden, actually. I did go to Dresden. And a lot of people know of Dresden because of World War II history. It was heavily bombarded. It was the topic of the books and movie Slaughterhouse-Five, which a lot of people are probably familiar with. And I actually saw the main cathedrals, the, the Frauenkirche, in 1991 as a pile of rubble. 
And one thing it really drove home to me was how fortunate we as Americans were throughout that conflict. The fact that our cities survived intact, unlike some of these places, they've since rebuilt the entire cathedral. And I would love to go back and see it rebuilt and then really compare, you know, what my experience was like in 1991 to the present day. Yeah, I think, you know, getting that perspective, it's really amazing. I mean, even think about now and what's going to happen with Notre Dame. I mean, there didn't have to be a war for that to happen. It's just there was a fire. But so many of us that had experienced Notre Dame before, over the centuries, have this, you know, this image of that was sort of a, you know, one of the first things you go to see when you go to Paris, right? And then and now there's a whole generation that's going to go by there and, and experience it as something else. And I think, you know, it, it's fascinating. It really is. So I'm kind of curious about the, the work that you're doing now. Sort of what would be your dream travel adventure? You know, have, do you, you probably have a bucket list of places that you want to go. But what to you as an introvert who maybe wants to see things from your personality and type perspective, as you described earlier, what would your dream vacation be or your dream place to maybe live if it's not where you are now? Well, let's see. My, my wife and I have thought about this actually quite a bit. And um, back in 2008, we went to Croatia. And I, have you been to Croatia before yourself, Heidi? Not yet. It's on my bucket list. All right. Well, I can recommend a number of wonderful places. Uh, in particular, the walled city of Dubrovnik, which is absolutely gorgeous. And they also have a a national park. I think it's called Plavice Lakes National Park, which has all these beautiful waterfalls. And it's just an amazing place. We actually thought back in 2008, this would be a great place to retire is, is in Croatia. We just love the people. We love the landscape. So that has actually been something we've thought about possibly in the future is, is retiring to a place like Croatia. As far as the perfect trip, I have to admit, I have a soft spot for World Heritage Sites. Mm -hmm. So I sort of collect them. I've been going and trying to visit as many of them as possible. Some of them are well known, like our national parks, like the Grand Canyon, for example, and Yellowstone National Park. And then there are some that are a lot less well known. But for me, the perfect trip would be able to explore these places and really get to see them and experience them without, you know, a lot of other people around. So, so being able to plan it. So I know exactly, you know, when the correct season is so that if I were visiting, say the Grand Canyon, it's sort of shoulder season or going there, say earlier in the morning to make sure you're not catching sort of the main rush of people. So for me, the perfect experience would involve me really being able to see these beautiful sites on my own terms and being able to avoid crowds of people as much as possible, but also at the same time, being able to talk to people who are local to the area and get to know them a little bit better. Because I think another aspect of my travel philosophy, is it isn't just getting away from people. I mean, there's certainly ways to get away from people. Like if you go up to the Arctic regions of the earth, there's not a lot of people. So it's an easy way to get away from people. But it's also about really getting to know you know local people and making new friendships and really getting to see the place sort of through their eyes and mm -hmm. through their culture 
And so for me, the perfect travel experience would involve encounters with people and forming new friendships with people who live in the place I'm visiting and, and the opportunity to see the place through their culture. It's the real immersion piece. I'm with you 100% on that one. That's my favorite. And I think as a native English speaker, I think it can be very challenging to come into new places where if you're trying to learn another language, for example, by default, everybody wants to speak English with you. And the numbers of how many people speak English are so skewed because it's actually the number one language in the world is bad English. Most people have a little bit of English, even if they don't say they speak English, and they all want to try. And uh, particularly with the internet is what I've found in any country I've ever lived in and learned the language. They want to speak English with you when as soon as they can detect a tiny little bit of English there, and they're like, oh, let's speak English. I, know, I hear you're struggling. Let's switch over to English. Or they want to learn about, you know, the American culture or whatever. And I mean, I'm living in the U.S. right now, but for many years I lived overseas. And when I first moved back to the U.S., I felt more like a foreigner than I did like an American coming home. And that was a very strange experience for me. And I think a lot of people, repatriation is one of the hardest things that people don't really take into account when they go live abroad. Is that something you experienced when you came back from studying in Germany? Or is that something that, I mean, I know you work more with sort of the vacation and shorter type thing, but for people who want the real immersion, have you heard from others or have you experienced yourself the challenge of coming back into normal life in what well, is supposedly when, your culture? When you mentioned your experience of living for several years abroad, I experienced that a little bit when I was coming back from Germany, because I, but I was only there for a semester, so three or four months. But I'd gotten so immersed. I, I'd, I'd forced myself to probably be more immersed than a lot of the other students in some ways, because part of it was avoiding the other student. Well, not, you know, it's not like being mean about it, but just, just getting away, distancing myself a little bit. And uh, when I did come back, I did feel, I did see America through new eyes. I mean, it felt like in a way a foreign country, probably not to the extent that you did being away for as long as you were. I don't know. One of the big adjustments, of course, is, you know, you, the age of, how old would I have been? About 20 or 21, 20, actually. I was able to drink, you know, responsibly over in Europe and it was no big deal. And then, of course, in the United States, of course, you've got very strict laws about that. So that was probably one of the more obvious changes. But also the mindset was very, very different. I, I don't know. I think the biggest eye-opener in a way was the fact in early 1991, um, there was this little thing called the Gulf War. And I literally went over to Germany. I think it was on the day of the ultimatum that our government was giving to Iraq to get the hell out of Kuwait. Otherwise, bad things were going to happen. So it was a very tense travel environment going over there. And then I heard about all of the happenings of our repatriation or, or liberation of Kuwait from Germany. And so I was mostly talking to Germans about it. And the opinions on it were divided, but I would say they were much more against what we were doing. They, they really had the idea that we were mostly doing it for oil and not for liberation of Kuwait, you know, and 
they were very cynical about it. And they probably mirrored a lot of the college students uh, back in the United States that I would have been familiar with at Colorado College, which tend to be a lot more left-leaning. So it was a little bit of adjustment coming back because Colorado Springs, for example, is a very, very conservative city. We have several military bases. People are very, very politically conservative. And so in a way, I sometimes feel like I'm a foreigner, even though I'm I'm an American, because I live in a place that politically is somewhat different than a lot of my personal beliefs on things. But even so, I think it's just a matter of standing back and recognizing those differences and appreciating them for what they are. It's not like they're good or bad. It's like they're just... They're just, just they just are. Yeah, it's so true. But I want to sort of circle back to one of the things you talked about there with news and just difference of opinions. And I think well, that's one of the things that was very fascinating to me living in Europe and also coming back and seeing the difference in what kinds of news. And we assume living in a democracy in America, freedom of the press, whatever, that you get all of the information, right? And the classic scenario. We were living in Sweden during the the war in going after Osama bin Laden. And, you know, the American press, they only talk about American casualties in any of the, if any of the news. It was all about the American casualties, but they never even mentioned numbers of how many of the civilian casualties there were. When living in Sweden, you get, you know, they get, they would tell you about both. That's not to say that the Americans were hiding anything. It was just that it wasn't necessarily of interest to the American audience that was reading it, but it, it definitely, by seeing things from the international press perspective, you realize there's two sides to everything, right? Yeah, and, and now it's become even more complicated because when you talk about the press in this country now, the press is so splintered and the sources of news are so different that people, even in your own town, will get because of and this is kind of getting towards your other podcasts about the digital self, you know, the fact that social media has managed to make it so that we can splinter ourselves into these little tribes, if you will. And that was something that wasn't happening at all during the two times that we were abroad for a long time. But now it's almost like you can be almost a foreigner from your neighbor because your neighbor listens to one news organization and you listen to a different one. It's really fascinating and a little bit disturbing in some ways. Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, the most important thing about that is just being conscious of the fact that there are those different media sources and, and sort of recognizing what your source is coming from and, and what their perspective is. And that takes sort of opening your eyes and opening your heart to saying like, there's differences of opinion. There's not necessarily one's right, one's wrong. But you have to recognize who the source is, you know, and it, it's like an interaction with anybody and on, even on a personal level. It's like, what is their intention? Are they trying to, you know, manipulate or are they just trying to give information? Yeah, so and I think the good thing about travel, the fact that we had the experiences that we had going to foreign countries for extended periods of time was that we were able to see those differences and learn about those differences. And that was only facilitated by our travel, the fact that we went to a different place with a different culture. So I always recommend to younger people that they should always, at least at one point in their life, go to a different country and learn about a new culture, sort of broaden their view on the world if they can. 
Well, absolutely. And even for people that, you know, it's not just for the young. There's so many opportunities. And one of the things that I have to say, you know, in the time that I worked and studied and lived abroad, people, you know, I'd come back to the station, oh, you're so lucky. It's like, you know what? Anybody can do this. The world is getting smaller. There's opportunities to go experience other cultures. And it's not, you know, Right now we're in quarantine, so things are a little bit different, but (laughs) I look at the difference between when we, coming from Boston, where my family is, the price of a ticket from Boston to California is about the same as the price of a ticket from California to Europe. So it's not a question, you know, it's really a question of picking when you're going to buy your ticket and looking for the deals. You can go anywhere in the world and you can find ways to explore and experience other cultures and you can go live with the family and experience, or you can bring those cultures to you. There are opportunities to host families for their coming to visit from another culture or host students, or there's so many different ways to experience other cultures. And it's just, you have to be open to it. And so I think that's something that I hope you encourage people to do in your work, but I certainly try to encourage people to do that because it doesn't just open up opportunities, it opens up your mind. And that's a beautiful thing. Yes, indeed it is. So I want to make sure that folks can find you and find your work and uh, work with you if they want to find the ultimate way to travel their way and not someone else's. How do they find you and how do they find your book? Well, I think the best way to find me is just to go to my website, travelyourwaytoday.com. And then from there, you can find ways to reach out to me directly. And the best way... To get the book is just go ahead and get a free electronic copy, which is my gift to you and your audience. And that's vacationbook.com with no asterisks or anything. Okay. If you send me that link, I'll make sure it goes into the show notes so folks can download the book and hear more about your story and, and find out ways to work with you because you all need to get out there. As soon as you can get out of your house, you should go check out the world because there's a lot happening out there. And whether you're going to see a heritage site within your own country or whether you're hitting the road and going across borders. There's so many wonderful things and wonderful people to meet and connect with. And thank you for doing your part for helping people do that, Michael. Thank you as well. I really appreciate you and I appreciate you, Digital Nomads, and I look forward to you joining us for more shows as we are a new show, please take some time to subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know what you want to hear more of. And if you have anybody that you would like to hear from that is a global nomad, expat, third culture kid, or just a world traveler, we would love to hear from you. And you can find out how in the show notes. Until next time, bye-bye for now.